0: Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others, and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist, and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 2. Loss of Innocence
1: My golden, fairy-tale childhood started to change forever when I was nine years old. On the 9th of November 1979, my mother, three brothers and I flew from Auckland to Los Angeles, marking the start of an extraordinary and life-changing four-month overseas adventure. We had been pulled out of school a few weeks before the end of the year and had said goodbye to our friends and our father, who stayed behind in our big old house, now free of noisy children to complete specialist vet exams. The dog, three cats, rabbits, and pet mice were all left in his care. Little did I know, as I waved goodbye to Dad, my pets, and my best friend, that nothing would ever be the same again. Little did I know that I was now also saying goodbye to the magic of innocence, my carefree life, the familiar, and the security I took for granted. How could I have known then I was also waving goodbye to Minnehaha, laughing water? Mum, our camp leader, who had never been out of New Zealand herself, not even to Australia just across the ditch, was determined we would have the opportunity to travel overseas as children. She believed it was a crucial part of our wider education as well-rounded citizens of the world. We were 8, 9, 10 and 12 years old we each valiantly headed off with our own wee backpacks, home-knitted mohair jerseys, duffel coats and Adidas tracksuits, in true 1970s style. We had a single, long, dark blue canvas bag we nicknamed the sausage that held our five sleeping bags, a serrated bread knife, which was promptly confiscated at the airport, and a wee camping cooker, along with a full, and I suspect highly inflammable, gas canister. Crikey. A few weeks before we left New Zealand, Mum cut my long blonde hair very short. She decided it would be easier to wash it while we were away. I did not seem to mind having it cut at the time, but I did reflect later that it was strange this was the same time Mum decided to grow out her tightly cropped hair into a long, auburn, seventies fro. Throughout our time away, I was constantly mistaken as a young boy. I remember our brief stopover in a very hot and steamy Hawaii where the air steward offered me a sachet of aftershave rather than perfume and mum had to tell him I was in fact a girl. A couple of weeks later, I was also asked in France if I played rugby by a very nice man whom we met late one night as we arrived at the railway station. It was a relief when we got to Greece and a slightly creepy local restaurant owner named Costa said he could not wait to marry me when I was a bit older. Although it was an entirely inappropriate marriage proposal, at least it indicated that someone finally realised I was in fact a girl. Perhaps my hair had grown a bit by then, and I think I now had acquired a lovely brown knit skirt too. Mum had a rather laissez-faire, will-o'-the-wisp approach to the beginning half of our trip. This meant that apart from our pre-purchased, open-ended rail tickets, We had no set destinations, transport, or set accommodation booked once we hit Europe. The only definite place we had to get to before Christmas was Crete, which gave us three weeks of meandering. In reality, this meant getting stuck in student protests, struggling to get taxis for a single woman, her four children and the blue custom-made sausage bag, running out of money in Rome due to massive bank strikes, sleeping in a very dodgy hotel after we arrived at the train station late at night in Paris, and being left alone with a random and luckily trustworthy taxi driver, while Mum went frantically in search of Frank's at the American Express office first thing the next day. We were often very tired and very hungry, as we regularly ran out of food. When we did have access to a good meal, I could never seem to finish it, as I would usually fall asleep at the table, exhausted. This is a trait I seem to still have to this day, preferring to eat dinner at 5pm if at all possible. On a bright note, when the time comes, I will be right at home in the retirement village I end up in one day. Rome had a huge impact on me. It was the first time I had ever seen beggars. I still recall the eerie sight of a woman holding a baby in her arms and silently gesturing for us to give her money. At one point, the woolen shawl slipped off the baby, and we could see it was in fact an unblinking plastic doll. Small, ragged children ran in choreographed groups around us, asking in broken English for money and trying to take our belongings. They looked the same age as myself and my three brothers. One of my strangest memories was visiting the ancient catacombs, the 2,000-year-old subterranean Roman burial grounds. We had a fabulous Indian tour guide who spoke five languages and was extremely funny. Once we were deep beneath the city streets of Rome, he showed us the skeleton of a woman with green hair. As you can see, she used apple shampoo, he laughed. In between various other skeletons and tombs, he and I chatted about our favourite Enid Blyton box. After the catacombs, we walked past an authentic pizzeria. Never before had we seen food look so remarkable. The chef took a ball of dough and threw it in the air over and over again until it spun out into a huge doughy disc, half a metre in diameter. As we stared in the window, gobsmacked and delighted by the magic before us, the chef could not resist Scott and my adorable dimples and gave us each a slice of the best pizza we'd ever eaten. I seemed to be constantly unwell when we were away. While the boys all seemed incredibly robust, I went from tummy bug to tummy bug. The worst time was when we were staying in a very basic one-star hotel on a hillside in a Crete fishing village called Agia Galini. Across the narrow street from our two hotel rooms was an overgrown empty lot beside a bubblegum pink hotel run by a large, very bossy Greek woman. I noticed that some tiny stray kittens were playing in the street just beside the Pink Hotel. They were then running back into the empty lot. One day I took the grey plastic ashtray from our hotel, filled it with milk, and fed the wee hungry malnourished kittens. The Pink Hotel proprietor screamed at me in disgust and tried to shoo me and the kittens away. That night, Mum, now desperate for some adult company, went out to the local bar just down the hill from our hotel. She had met a handsome and stylish German artist, Lothar, earlier that week, and they decided to go out dancing together. Mum locked us all in our rooms, Scott and I in one, Damon and Michael in the other. But while locked in that night, I was struck by another bout of very bad diarrhoea. When I went to the bathroom, there was no more toilet paper, The cleaner had been in earlier that week and had surprisingly decided to first clean the toilet with the toilet brush, and then to use the toilet brush to clean the basin too, and they had forgotten to replenish the loo paper. All I could find in my state of desperation was a notepad of what turned out to be very shiny and highly waterproof paper. A couple of weeks later, shortly after Christmas in Crete, Mum... Damon, Scott and I were all diagnosed with hepatitis on our arrival in Germany from Greece. Mike, who was quite fastidious about cleanliness, was the only one of us to escape. Instead of being stuck in bed for weeks, he went off skiing in Austria with the family friends we were staying with. But as we journeyed to the relative safety of Germany, something else was to happen, something that would leave a powerful imprint on my psyche for the rest of my life. It was the middle of a freezing winter, as we travelled by train from Greece to Germany. The landscape was covered in snow and thick layers of ice. Luckily, we had a single compartment where the five of us could all be seated together. As we passed through Turkey, the train was suddenly swamped by Gasterbeiten, guest workers, the Turkish workers returning from their Christmas break, now heading back to their jobs in Germany. The corridors of the train carriages were now jam-packed with people and their belongings. Snow and cold seeped in between the doors to the outside world. All we had to eat during this 48-hour journey was a single jar of peanut butter, a few sesame bread rings and a wee bag of mandarins. We were famished. We all fantasised about what we would devour when we got back home. The ultimate meal, we all decided, would be hot Vogel's toast, smothered in melted butter and topped with crunchy peanut butter. One night, I awoke to a flash of bright light and some strange muffled sounds. I could hear mum sounding distressed and angry. A man had come into our compartment and was physically forcing himself onto her as she slept. Groggy with sleep and caught unawares, mum was now desperately trying to push him off her and out the door to our compartment all the while trying not to wake her four sleeping children. I lay there frozen with fear, unable to move, unable to help my mother. I felt so small and powerless I could barely breathe, terrified the man would hear my rustling sleeping bag and try to grab me too. Eventually, after much struggling, one of the drunk man's friends came and dragged him out. I do not think mum knew I was awake, that I had witnessed what I now know was a sexual attack. I lay there quietly for the rest of the night, wide awake, vigilant. Ears stretched to capacity as I listened out carefully for any unusual sounds in the dark. I now knew we were not safe. On arrival into the train station in Munich, the phone number mum had for our friends did not work. She could not get hold of them. It was now after midnight. Much of the train station was closed. There was nowhere to go. Mum pulled our sleeping bags out from the blue sausage and we all bunked down on the hard, cold floor of the train station. It was 20 degrees below zero. Somehow I did sleep a wee bit. I think the total exhaustion of the night before, the lack of food and the growing feeling of anxiety and fear inside me had left me deeply tired. The next morning a very kind man helped mum to find our friend's phone number. Once we were safely at our friend's home, Mum and I both became very, very ill. I remember one night sleeping in the bunk bed above my brother Damon when I was struck by an overwhelming need to throw up. After that, I slept on the bottom bunk, unable to keep virtually any food down for days on end. I grew weaker day by day, and my eyes turned a jaundiced pale yellow. It was critical we stayed out of hospital, if at all possible, In Germany at the time, the health system could have kept us in their care for as long as they felt was necessary, whether that was weeks or potentially even months. I had overheard the doctor say I was very sick and that we could die from hepatitis. This thought terrified me. Most of the time while we were sick, mum just seemed tired and irritable. She was of course preoccupied with adult issues and her own thoughts and worries, and she was terribly unwell too but it felt as if there was not much room for me and my fears as a little nine-year-old girl amongst all that mum was managing. It felt important that I was easy and was no extra trouble. Throughout my life, I was always very aware of other people's feelings and emotions. I was always extremely attuned to their energy, what they said, and more importantly, how they said it. This meant I did not feel I could really talk to mum or tell her how terribly anxious I was feeling. I felt very alone. I kept quiet. Eventually, after weeks of convalescence, once we were finally well enough to leave our dear and very generous friends, the Laws, in Germany, we stopped off with more family friends in England as we began our long journey home. We had a network of wonderful and very hospitable homes to stay at throughout the world when the time came to travel. Growing up in Palmerston North, near Massey University, and the DSIR, many of our neighbours and parents' friends were professionals and visiting academics from different parts of the world, in subjects ranging from music, psychology, horticulture, or even dead Norwegian languages, as was the case with one friend. When we reached our friend's place, the Gaunts, in their 500-year-old stone house, I remember being both exhilarated and terrified when we were told that there was a resident ghost in one of the rooms. A Jacobean priest had been killed during the time of Henry VIII and the dissolution of the Catholic Church throughout Britain in the 1500s. We were told with ghoulish delight that his spirit would wander around the rooms at night. We returned to New Zealand in late February 1980, tired, still unwell, and forever changed. The things I had seen and experienced when we were overseas, life in a Greek fishing village, damaged by war, Staying in a 500-year-old house in England with its own ghost. Children my age, begging in Rome. The catacombs. The ancient Greek ruins with homeless cats and dogs running around in packs, unfed and uncared for. The man who tried to attack my mother while we all slept in a train carriage. Not knowing where our next meal would come from or where we might sleep. Having a life-threatening illness. This had all made a deep imprint on me and my psyche. It was perhaps not surprising then that the following summer back in New Zealand, when we all went camping on what turned out to be our last ever summer holiday as a family, to Mahia, near Gisborne, I fell into what I now believe was a state of depression caused by anxiety and stress. I became utterly obsessed with death and dying. Nothing could shake my fixation. Sunshine, fishing, swimming in the cold, salty, blue sea. Playing with friends amongst the smell of warm, fragrant pine trees in the camping ground, none of it helped. My time overseas, when I bore witness to the harsh reality of the world beyond my fairy tale upbringing, had awoken a realisation inside me. Life was not easy. Life was often full of suffering, and I now realised I was mortal. I now knew I not only could die, but one day would die. It was all I could think about, and in a way, some part of me had died. My innocence was forever gone. I vividly remember the car ride back home on our arrival from Europe when Dad collected us from Wellington Airport. The two-hour journey to Palmerston North was deeply uncomfortable, and I could feel a palpable and familiar tension between my parents. They did not really seem that pleased to see one another after nearly five months apart. And there was that overwhelming fatigue and that dull ache again in my side. It would take a year before I would fully recover from the hepatitis. I kept quiet. I did not want to be a bother. It was now clear to me that other issues were emerging. More important issues. Adult issues. Political issues. Issues of social justice.
0: And fairness. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.